Hello, and welcome to the 26th episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. The mission of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater, review a production without plot spoilers, and hopefully inspire you to go see a new play, musical, or theater company. You should get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am a critic for the website Broadway World, writing those reviews under my name, Joe Lombardi, but my blog and this podcast discusses every show I attend. I am New York City-based, but often review productions in other locations as well. This monthly podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google. Pick your favorite, and if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate a five-star review, which helps me spread the word about recommended theater productions. Today, I am going to share my observations for shows I attended during the month of December 2019. In addition, I will have a segment which includes a conversation with two theater artists who are opening their new play in January. As this is the month of December, there are a lot of holiday-themed offerings to review. In this episode, I'm going to cover the burlesque extravaganza Nutcracker Rouge, a play called The Santa Closet, and four versions of A Christmas Carol. One, A Christmas Carol in Harlem, the Broadway production with Campbell Scott, a Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater's update called A Christmas Carol, Oi Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Ramadan, and finally, a two-person version that was performed in a living room in a Greenwich Village townhouse. From the land of Off-Broadway, I'll talk about a number of plays, including Alex Riad's The Wild Parrots of Campbell, a revival of Horton Foote's Pulitzer Prize winner, The Young Man from Atlanta, a rare revival of a 1933 German play called Judgment Day, which was performed at the Park Avenue Armory, and Lucas Nath's newest play, The Thin Place. I will also tell you about a couple of other shows, including a holiday show created by and starring two of the biggest names from RuPaul's Drag Race, Ben de la Creme and Jinx Monsoon. The title of that one? All I Want for Christmas is Attention. And, as I mentioned before, this upcoming month, I will be reviewing a new play by Dante Piero called Soul Survivor down at the Players Theater in Greenwich Village. Dante and his director Molly Brown stopped by to talk with me about this play in advance of the production. I'm intrigued to see this play, and I think you may be as well when you hear their segment later in this podcast. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Direct links to this podcast are located on the About This Reviewer page, so you can easily find links to your favorite provider. In addition, you can register online to receive emails for all new posts as they are added. Now let's take our seats so I can tell you about this month's shows. I'll begin this month's reviews with Nutcracker Rouge from Company XIV. Holiday entertainments come in many different packages. Some are very traditional and celebrate a white Christmas. Silver Bells is a Christmas Carol. 
Hanukkah is represented by blue and silver. Red and green are standard and scream trees and Santa. Rouge, however, suggests both a color and a rosy cheek. If you are looking for an excess of sexiness in your holiday punch this year, try the Nutcracker Rouge. Depending on your tolerance for bare buttocks, this decadent vaudevillian delight might even make you blush. Company XIV bills itself as the home of Baroque burlesque. I have previously seen their supremely entertaining stagings of the classic tale Ferdinand and the Alice in Wonderland-themed Queen of Hearts. This holiday entertainment fits seamlessly into this troupe's aesthetic for showcasing eye-popping talent and visual splendor with wit and ceaseless joy. In their atmospheric cabaret environment, grab a cocktail and allow the performers to seat you. Take a look at the screen on stage. On the right, a man and woman who may represent French royalty are expressing shock. That is in reaction to the scene illustrated on the left. A woman is caught performing the can-can with no underwear. There is a naked man laying on the floor. He is not alone. The category is Moulin Rouge. The imagery is flagrant debauchery. The endlessly performed Nutcracker is frequently represented in this show. There are ballets and many sections where Tchaikovsky's music is celebrated. Austin McCormick and his company add tons of modern flourishes to its Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy and other favorites. The show opens with some magic tricks by Albert Kadabra and a Russian lullaby. The range of performance variations is typically dazzling. The fun quotient is extremely high. Through the course of this three-act extravaganza, you will learn that absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. Even the intermission is provocative as a scantily clad woman teases her audience while sweeping confetti off the stage. Candy and sweets are central to this show. The powerhouse Christina Ray belts out, I smell sex and candy from Marcy Playground's hit song. The line, Mama, this sure is a dream, nicely sums up the mood generated. In an evening of exquisitely conceived exotic and erotic musical numbers, there are high points. Britney Spears's Toxic accompanies Troy Lingenbach on the trapeze. His body contortions are unbelievable, and the breakneck speed of the skills he performs is truly incredible. I was reminded of an airborne pommel horse routine. He concludes his number with something that can only be called a spinning upside-down Beelman. Figure skating fans can conjure that image. The effervescent Marcy Richardson rides a crescent moon while singing an operetta version of Oasis's Champagne Supernova. In the air, she will continually change body positions and ask her appreciative audience, where were you when we were getting high? Nutcracker Rouge is, first and foremost, a party. Each cast member shines in their moments in the spotlight. Christine Flores plays the ballet's grown-up Marie Claire. 
the Clara character in this production. She will explore many of her adult fantasies throughout the evening. The heady mix of styles and genres allows her to chew, chew, chew your bubblegum and also dance a fine sugar plum pasta do with Nicholas Caton. As always, the creative elements are mesmerizing. Costumes are relentlessly sexy, appropriately scandalous, and hilariously cheeky in more ways than one. The lighting design bathes the stage and the performers in a glow which suggests a dream cabaret. The athleticism and artistry of these talented individuals are top-notch. The holiday may be represented in the theme, but this burlesque is a celebration of the human body and its abilities. There is a lot of competition for your holiday entertainment dollar each and every holiday season. Last year, I finally returned to see the Radio City Music Hall's Christmas Spectacular. If that show is indeed spectacular, then Nutcracker Rouge is certainly fantastique. From my seat, these recurring productions are essential New York holiday viewing. The Nutcracker Rouge will be performed in Company XIV's Bushwick location until January 26th. I have a link to the show's promotional video trailer on the website in my review. Just type in Nutcracker Rouge in the search box and you can click to the YouTube trailer. Next up, The Santa Closet from Houses on the Moon Theater. Christmas is fully represented on the stage in the small Teatro Circulo Theater. All is not quite normal, though. On the left side of the stage, there is a decorated tree with presents underneath. The same thing is duplicated on the right side, except this group hangs upside down from the ceiling. Our world and the legend of Kris Kringle are turned upside down in the Santa closet. Claire DeLiso's scenic design beautifully prepares the viewer for this topsy-turvy tale. Written and performed by Jeffrey Solomon, The Santa Closet is an update of a 2009 off-Broadway play. Santa Claus is Coming Out was the name of that one, and this has been rewritten to reflect changes in our society since then. Every word, he promises, is based on real interviews with individuals and creatures. Mr. Solomon plays all of the parts. This story is thought-provoking and funny. The struggles are realistic and theatrical. Could Santa be gay? Young Gary writes a letter to Santa. He wants a Sparkle Ann doll. Action figures are boring since you can't style their hair. Mom tells us that her son is more sensitive, artistic. Dad always has to play the bad guy to protect him from bullying. The parents are standard issue types, but are compassionately rendered to reflect inner turmoils and fears for their son. Sydney is Santa's Jewish agent. He's the one who got Santa those Coca-Cola commercials all those years ago. He narrates part of the story. Sid is one of a parade of broad stereotypes. Gary's best friend is a young black girl. The elf foreman is a manly blue-collar guy. 
there is an Italian man and a harsh family values woman who hates the radical alphabet people. Mr. Solomon easily slips in and out of all of these characters as the tale unfolds. When Gary fails to receive his beloved Sparkle Ann doll, the next year he is extra good. Quote, I cut all the plastic rings on Daddy's beer cans so the sea turtles do not get choked. His new Christmas request is Dream Date Norm, a shirtless, muscular, Ken-like plastic doll. Fans of mockumentary films will find much of the tone here familiar and welcome. The play is agreeably silly, with dashes of wink-wink snarkiness tossed in. Rudolph makes an appearance. He is a founding member of the Misfit Task Force. The name was changed to the Christmastown Diversity Committee because Hermie the Dennis thought the word misfit could be offensive. One child writes to Santa and asks, Why do gay people say, you better work it? When the jokes land, they are often hilarious and good-spirited. Many laugh lines fall a little flat, unfortunately. The best parts of the Santa closet involved more serious philosophical questions. Santa was caught in a photograph as a participant in the Stonewall riots. Agent Sid has to hire an actress to play Mrs. Claus for damage control. Her nuances have nuances. The plot morphs into a consideration of the legend of Santa Claus and what would happen if it were discovered he was a gay man. There is a good deal of crisis imagined in Mr. Solomon's play. None of it seems far-fetched, sadly. How would parents react? The media? Children? Focusing a rainbow spotlight on the cherished Father Christmas makes for some thoughtful debate. Since this show presents this material in a fairly tame manner, families could watch this together and have interesting discussions afterward. The Santa Closet was inspired by the need to discuss LGBTQ issues with children. On that level, it succeeds. The play was directed by Joe Brancato and Emily Joy Weiner. Mr. Solomon is a game performer who brings these characters to life. My favorite was Gary's mother, with the Italian a close runner-up. The video projections are very, very well done. The Santa Closet has good intentions, but the story does drag on as characters frequently rotate in and out of the story. Jokes miss as much as they hit. The concept is terrific, however. This modern parable might even be better realized as a mockumentary film, with multiple actors creating a campy and insightful holiday treat. Now let's begin our journey through the A Christmas Carols this season, the first A Christmas Carol in Harlem, presented by the Classical Theater of Harlem. A close friend recently told me there was no cure for climate change. Too many people on the planet. He theorized the solution was to eliminate two-thirds of the world's population. Ebenezer Scrooge also shares the same sentiment. If the sick and downtrodden cannot survive, then they will help decrease the surplus population. A Christmas Carol in Harlem updates Charles Dickens's classic novella into modern times with a socially contemplative spin. 
Charles Bernard Murray is a miserable Scrooge, and that is a compliment. He is a landlord who boasts, "'Tis the season to pay rent." A social worker, Sierra Jones, pleads with him not to raise rents so high that people are forced out of their homes. There's welfare for that, Scrooge replies. Many are not faring well, she counters. The rallying cry is bluntly delivered. Harlem, are you tired of the increasing number of empty storefronts? This story is localized and laser beam focused on its neighborhood. Scrooge is a classic miser. For him, Christmas is about wasting money from online sales to throwaway trees. He tells Ms. Jones that he always follows the law when charging tenants. Her well-written response? Laws by design make fairness elusive. Many topical points are raised in this story to bring themes from the Victorian era into present-day Harlem. The structure of Dickens' story is followed from the Cratchit family's financial woes to the ghost visitations. Aaron Barnes acrobatically performs the ghost of Christmas past. Her enjoyable take on the role is limber, casually stylish, and unique. This section of A Christmas Carol in Harlem is a high point. Scrooge revisits his old workplace, a packing and shipping facility. A rousing ensemble number singing about underneath the mistletoe is fun. This is one of the many moments that Alan C. Edwards's lighting design is used to excellent effect. The staging of this musical is filled with visual treats from costumes by Lex Liang and Margaret Goldrainer to varied entrances and exits. The set design is a clever set of boxes with window cutouts to represent city buildings. They will shuffle around as the story requires and also hold props. The projections nicely enhance the simple settings. The playground fence with a hole in it was wholly recognizable. Director Carl Cofield and choreographer Tiffany Ray Fisher have inserted interesting transitions using their ensemble to represent the hustle and bustle of a city. The scene change between the office and the clock store was especially good and led to a very funny cameo by Angela Polite as the clock shop lady. Not every moment in this show is at that same level. The more serious sections slow momentum until the next bit of sparkle arrives. This musical is clearly a family entertainment. Playwright Sean Renee Graham has written this version to be locally focused and easily relatable to its target audience. A few social concern points, however, come across as messages delivered by standing on a soapbox rather than through organic dialogue. What is particularly rewarding about this take on the parsimonious Scrooge are the bigger picture lessons which this theater company is passionate about communicating. Harlem used to be a cultural mecca, as exemplified by the past glories of the Lennox Lounge and the Savoy. There is an urgent plea to make arts thrive again in this community, to enrich the neighborhood, and by extension, reflect its people and their lives. The overarching theme of A Christmas Carol in Harlem is to keep the holiday spirit alive throughout the year. 
Worldwide problems like climate change and income inequality can seem daunting and unsolvable. This musical beautifully presents an alternative to giving up. Every person can make a difference. Start by taking care of one child at a time, followed by one family. Incremental steps will lead to taking care of one building at a time, and then one block at a time. That is the recommended prescription to bringing joy back to a neighborhood. Isn't that the true meaning of Christmas? Now it's time to take a little break from holiday theater offerings. Let me tell you about the play, The Wild Parrots of Campbell, presented by Now Collective. In Sean Gorski's excellent scenic design, an inflatable parrot is perched on the back of a lounge chair. More parrots hang from the eave of a house. One of them, tellingly, has deflated and collapsed onto the gutter's downspout. Three empty beer bottles and two empty Proseccos sit on the table. An accumulation of cigarette butts fills the ashtray. Even the table cover has images of parrots. It's New Year's Eve and time to meet the wild parrots of Campbell. Amanda is the newest resident of this unkempt California home. She brings a camera outside to take photos of the squawking birds which reside on telephone wires nearby. Charlie invited her to live with him after having developed a six-month relationship with her online poker-playing persona, Stubborn Girl 96. Amanda's early take on her new situation is candid. The house contains dirty dishes and a bunch of losers who don't want me to be here. Change seems difficult for these slackers. Nikki is the front woman of a feminist punk band. She noticed the inside getting cleaner. She's leaving her mark. Jack understands that his brothers always brought in strays. Charlie has been grieving since his mother died. He fills his inherited home with humans adrift in financial predicaments and unfocused yet swirling seas. Charlie is unhappy, but his online relationship with Amanda helped him cope she has had her own troubles, and his offered was a chance to escape. She's 20 years old, and he is 23. The face-to-face -face encounter isn't exactly going as planned for either of them. She's quiet and off-putting. He's tired of all the slacker shit, but surrounds himself with that world. The tense energy created by this home intrusion is utterly believable in Alex Riad's world premiere play. Older brother, the freeloading Jack, is 31 and sits around all day drinking. Jobs suck and not doing them is his rule. He returned to his childhood home last year after a 13-year absence. Charlie had to take care of his dying mother alone. The bridge between them is vast but a familial sense of responsibility helps their relationship maintain a reasonable coexistence. Kevin is the fifth person living here. He works at Psycho Donuts with teenage girls. Psycho Donuts' motto? Crazy good. He spends his free time getting stoned 
as a day is an easy thing to waste. Kevin is portrayed by Adrian Burke. The character is two-dimensional, and the performance is equally two-dimensional. This loser without feelings or depth is so completely realized, you knowingly agree when Charlie says that he has the social skills of a radish. When Kevin is finally needed to step up and say something meaningful other than, cool, the moment was sadly pitiful and vividly realized. Padraic Lillis directed The Wild Pirates of Campbell, and this cast develops all of their naturalistic characters into fully fleshed out damaged souls. There are many slacker laughs to be had. Mr. Riad's play, however, seems more interested in the past traumas endured by these people, which caused their symbiotic codependence. How did each of them get here? More importantly, will any of them get better in this house together? Nikki admits hers is a pretty pathetic life to keep fighting for. I left the theater believing she may have the best shot at a different future. Charlie may be the one with a job at Google, but his anxieties seem too deeply rooted. Both appear to manage the outside world more easily than the others, or at least pretend better. Both Casey Lee Huzinga and John Domino beautifully inhabit these roles with stark realism and abject fear lurking very near the surface. Their second act scene together exudes a bond of friendship that only years of history can create. Older brother Jack is filled with warmth, drunkenness, compassion, and anger. Why did he not return home until his mother died? Evan Hall is tremendously successful in bringing all facets of this complicated person in a strikingly complete portrait. Jack has a compellingly dramatic scene near the end of the first act. This was the only section of this play where the writing seemed a bit heavy-handed. Domenica Farad nicely handles the difficult role of Amanda. She may be the most adrift, despite her no-smoking-or-drinking stance. In a house full of young people surviving emotional injuries, she has not put on as many band-aids as the others. When asked, Will you ever go home? She replies, I hope not. The gaping wounds and crusty scars are what make this play so very penetrating. The parrots are indeed real in Alex Riad's observational and searching character study. They squawk and even say a few phrases. They remind us that words are heard and remembered sometimes long after they've been said. An entertaining piece of theater that managed to get under my skin, The Wild Parrots of Campbell is definitely a trip to the zoo to see slackers. By the end, you'll hope these souls in these particular cages will find peace, love, and joy. I'm doubtful and eternally hopeful. Before I begin my next review, in 2018 there was an extraordinarily fine exhibit about David Bowie at the Brooklyn Museum. A great friend of mine came into town and we intended that show together. She was back in town the same weekend I was scheduled to go to La Mama and review Where Are We Now based on the David Bowie catalog. I am a big fan of David Bowie's work and she's a super fan, so it was terrific to have a fine assist in going to see a show discussing it afterward 
to prepare for this review. This is Where Are We Now, which was performed at La Mama. Fans of David Bowie's music, and especially his lyrics, should immediately stop listening to this review and book tickets to see the very limited run of Where Are We Now. With a $26 top ticket price, this is one of the greatest cabaret values in New York City. The version of Heroes is musically gorgeous and absolutely unforgettable. I would argue the best one ever. I would be right. In the basement space of La Mama, Sven Rotsky performs two hours of music from the Bowie catalog. In between numbers, he tells stories, makes jokes, and pulls his audience into his orbit. He enters wearing a blue jacket with hilariously exaggerated shoulder pads and large boots. Everything about his look and his performance, however, scream homage rather than caricature. Mr. Rotsky reminds us that the one thing he and his audience have in common is a memory of this unique and remarkable artist. For him, David Bowie gave us a key to a big house at the end of a street. Exploring each room leads to another song in another world. Why not open the show with The Man Who Sold the World? Charming is the word which best describes this performer. He informs us that he is one half German and one half Dutch. That dichotomy leads to one side yelling, where are the drugs, and the other side responding, nine, nine, nine. Directed by Dirk Groneveld, this show is well-paced. The enjoyable storytelling and relaxed atmosphere is interspersed with one musical high point after another. The marvelous Christian Pabst accompanies Mr. Rotsky on a grand piano. This show is intimate and reflective, funny and seriously thoughtful. The music is simply exquisite and beautiful in its simplicity. You can hear David Bowie in the performance, but it is not mimicry. It's adulation. The lyrics shine brightly, and the piano becomes a perfect vehicle to reconsider these classic songs. There is a nice mix of later career radio standards and early developmental quirkiness. Gene Genie has never been a favorite song of mine. This version adds piano solos and riffing. The tune becomes yet another standout so that it is very difficult to decide which is the best moment in this melodic waterfall of excellence. Ashes to Ashes, perhaps? Terry Mugler and Armin van Zutphen designed the witty and colorful costumes with shoes by Jan Jansen. Mr. Ratsky has an imposing stage presence. He is a space oddity with his elaborately styled mane of hair. The impressively restrained lighting design enhances this show considerably. I found the evening to be as magical as it is nostalgic. In an encore at the end of Where Are We Now, Mr. Rosky will ask, Is there life on Mars? He sings about the film being a saddening bore. This show is anything but that. As you were unable to catch this extraordinarily conceived and performed entertainment in December, 
He will be back in May at Joe's Pub. Don't commit a rock and roll suicide and miss this opportunity to slow down and listen. Expressive lyricism and wistful introspection await the lucky theater goer. Next, I'd like to talk about The Young Man from Atlanta, which was revived at Signature Theater. As an enormous fan of the work by Horton Foote, I was generally thrilled that Signature Theater was going to revive The Young Man from Atlanta. I missed that production when it had its world premiere in 1995. Mr. Foote was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for this play. I find that praise hard to fathom after sitting through this stilted melodrama. Will Kidder, Lily Dale Kidder, and Pete Davenport are the major characters in this play. They were included in the magnificent nine-play opus called The Orphan's Home Cycle. I saw a superb revival of that entire cycle at Signature Theater in 2009. The original story was about generations of a family inspired by Mr. Foote's own father. He decided to revisit these characters when he wrote The Young Man from Atlanta. The settings are typical of his style, combining quirky Texas families and their relationships with each other and the outside world. Will Kidder was played by Aidan Quinn. He is much older here and has suffered the loss of his only child, who drowned at 37 years old. He's convinced the death was suicide. He discusses this with a co-worker as he cannot talk to his wife. Clunky setups like this one at the start of this play mar the usual believable and naturalistic atmosphere so prevalent in other pieces that Mr. Foote has written. His wife Lily is sure the drowning was an accident. Her grief has stopped her from playing the piano. She reminded me of my grandmother who never drove a car after her teenage son died. That pain is recognizable. Kristen Nielsen, an admirable and often excellent comic actress, is necessarily restrained in her performance. She is not necessarily the right choice for this part, however. The title character is a man who lived with their son in Atlanta. He showed up at the funeral and was obviously grieving. Lily is still communicating with him and has sent him money. When the patriarch loses his job, the solid ground of the white American male collapses. Mr. Foote's men see work ethic as their primary driver in life. An absolute right to success that they are owed given their efforts. With the debt of a brand new home, money is suddenly tight for the first time ever. Financial stress mounts and is not hard to predict what will happen. The Kidders have a black maid named Clara, who's played by Harriet D. Foy. Lily is obsessed with the Disappointment Club. This club is one in which black women supposedly fail to show up for work at white women's homes to get back at them. Lily's heard that Eleanor Roosevelt was behind this and quizzes both black characters about their knowledge of such club. Texas in the 1950s feels segregated as in the book and film The Help. Throughout the performance I caught, lines were flubbed repeatedly. Some people come across as underdeveloped caricatures. Others, such as Lily's stepfather, who was played by Stephen Payne, well, they just blandly appear and seem to add little to the proceedings.
Michael Wilson directed this production as he did with the accomplished Orphan's Home Cycle. I cannot pinpoint why the tone seems so off-kilter and the pacing so labored. A late scene between Will and Lily, thankfully, was richly emotional and perhaps hinted at the original's success. Pat Bowie portrays Etta Doris in the show's best scene. She is a retired elderly maid who worked for Lily many years ago. Clara invited her to say hello. There is a touching moment when the passage of time and the wisdom of age is considered. Whose life is happier or more settled in retrospect? Dan Bittner and John Orsini were equally memorable as the co-worker Tom Jackson and a familial relative named Carson. We never meet the young man from Atlanta. It's not too hard to guess why this grieving man is clinging to Lily's sympathy. Their creative son was always a bit different and hard to understand. Set in 1950, one can understand the burying of secrets. By 1995, however, this contrived soap opera is hardly unique storytelling or thematically revolutionary. I highly recommend trying Horton Foote's plays. They are usually superb dissections of a time, a place, and a people he knows intimately. The Young Man from Atlanta is not one of them. The Orphan's Home Cycle, The Trip to Bountiful, Dividing the Estate, and The Roads to Home are all ones I've seen, and they're worth your time. I will seek others out as they are revived. He's usually that good. I'm going to pause now from the reviews and include a segment with two people who stopped by to talk about their world premiere play, Soul Survivor, being presented by the Hyrith Theatre Company. Playwright Dante Piero and director Molly Brown are in rehearsals for the presentation of this play, which will begin on January 16th. Soul Survivor is described first and foremost as a raucous comedy exploring an obnoxious bureaucratic hell. It promises that any touching moments or examination of morality are purely accidental. Now let's listen in to my conversation with Dante and Molly. Right now I'd like to welcome Dante Piero and Molly Brown who are working on a new play that Dante has written called Soul Survivor. Molly is directing and we're going to talk to them about their play, um, the inspiration for writing it, the inspiration for doing it, and get a sense of what it's all about. This play, Soul Survivor, will be running at the Players Theater on McDougal Street from January 16th to February 2nd. So Dante, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the play is about, what inspired you to write it, and uh, what you're hoping your audiences are going to see when they experience it. Absolutely. So the inspiration for writing it started as just one scene, which is the opening scene for the show, of a older sister coming home to a younger brother just completely whacked out on something and um, naked devouring peanut butter in the middle of her living room. And sort of, I wanted to see that scene, and then I wrote it, and I said, I really like this scene. And then I said, oh, Drat, now I need to write a play to justify it. And um, what that kind of uh, spiraled into was um, less a story about um, the comedic properties of peanut butter and more about redemption. In today's modern age, you see people online or like 
talk to friends. And they're talking about their uh, own personal problems with their family, such as my brother keeps asking to borrow money, or my uncle is like won't stop drinking even though he's been in the hospital several times for like uh, cirrhosis of the liver. And when you have those kind of uh, really dependent people, it's becoming more uh, common to either have these like grand posts on Facebook or anything saying like. Um, how great it is to, like, I've cut this toxic person out of my life, and then everyone comes up and says, like, oh, yes, congratulations, like, you you go, girl, good for you. But when it comes to family and stuff like that, it's kind of not the same case. If someone is, it's like, that's the main difference between whether or not it's okay to cut out, like, a dependent person of your life, in your life. And so trying to explore that line of, Today, where is that line of like irredeemability in family is what sprung out. So the characters that you wrote, are they based on anybody you know or archetypes of people you know, or did you they just come to you and you're just created them? They're definitely more um archetypal. Archetypical? <laughs> oh goodness, let's not go down that rabbit hole pronunciation, but they definitely st- ended up a lot more uh, prototypical, let's say. Okay. That's a more fun word, more P's and T's, um, than, I guess, people I know personally. Uh, I even went, once I re- looked at the structure, I realized it was a lot more um, uh, biblical than anything else, and I was able to use kind of like a, some like almost Old Testament characters to like fill in um, some motivations and everything. And then, then the angels and demons and everything else came out pretty easily. <laughs> Right. Well, Molly, when you read the characters, I guess when you were deciding to do the piece with Dante, what did you think about them and, and sort of what did, what did they, how did they speak to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is that when I read it, it, it might have been silly of me, but I read it and I was like, well, I don't even have to do anything here. Like, the, it just, the text speaks for itself. Uh, I think that everyone is so vivid and the characters themselves are so like I I legitimately laughed out loud several times while I was reading it but yeah I mean I think every character is it's it's a really interesting group of people to put together you're watching people be really tested Lisa our our um our lady our sister you know it's really just I think she's who we have as an audience to kind of relate to the most and and watching what she's going through I think it's just going to be a really good time. So Dante, why don't you tell us what your play is about and you know the story, it's a comedy as it she described it. It is a comedy. <laughs> I realize describing some of the I guess like a heavier themes of it it makes it seem like it might be some like um, intense drama but no, it is funny. I promise. Um as far as the plot goes, are just like simple, like what would be like a, I don't know, blurb online or something for it. A deadbeat younger brother has um, sold both his and his older sister's soul in exchange for one month happiness and 25 grams of ketamine. Uh, he failed his credit check for the infernal contract, so um, hell is collecting tonight, and they have to find a way out of it using uh, trickery and loopholes in contracts. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how many characters, and is it a dark comedy, a light comedy? How would you describe your comedy? My comedy trends dark. Uh, This one I wrote 
from the beginning to be like to be a comedy. Like it's definitely like if you go and you'll definitely feel like a more of a, like a well-made play. Okay, this is definitely like it's got the comedy beats to it, but because I can't like stay away from darkness for too long, like it gets it definitely delves into some darker things, especially towards the end. And the characters, there are uh, eight characters. We have six actors portraying the whole team. Uh, there is the brother and sister. There are two demons. Um, some cops show up, the sister's fiancé, and then uh, two surprise characters that I'll save for until you see the show. What's the biggest challenge uh, for the piece? Because it's obviously comedy is mm -hmm. often difficult to do really, really well. Yeah. So what is, what's the biggest challenge for you as, as the director of the piece? I think the biggest challenge is that um, there, there are themes that are, I would say it is definitely a dark comedy. And uh, the biggest challenge is justifying those moments uh, where things get darker and, and just really making sure that even though it is primarily a comedy, that we can make sure that those moments that we have that are much more dramatic are earned fully. Uh, the play deals with a lot of addiction, so there's an effort to make sure that that is portrayed uh, as accurately and with as much respect as possible, and that that doesn't become comedic. Uh, but that becomes truly like that's that's a real thing that we need to address and make sure that we're keeping an eye on. And the actors are so mind-blowingly good at that. Just like treating every moment with care and then really making us laugh a second later. It's been truly so sad. I mean, just especially the demons, having them watching those two women play with each other is uh, such a gift. Oh, that's great. Doug, let me ask you a question. Have you all, I know you've written a number of plays yes. before this one. Is comedy what inspires you? Are your, all, all your plays been comedic? How, how would you how do you how would you describe your work to date? Well, I don't think you can have like true drama without comedy like these days. Like if I go something that seems like it's trying too hard to be like a serious moment or a serious thing, then it just kind of it always falls flat, right? Um, we were just talking about the Harriet movie. <laughs> right. Trying so hard to make sure that it's like good and justified and like honoring like the legend that it is instead of like just kind of like telling the story. And life and death is hilarious. So I can't not make some things funny. So let me talk about your opening on your starting previews January 16th, opening on the 17th. What are you hoping your audiences? get out of this is this a good laugh is it a head scratcher is it a little combination of what like when you when your audience leaves what would you love their reaction to be and i'll throw that out to both of you mm -hmm. hopefully first and foremost just have a good time at the theater uh it is especially with our cast it is so so funny mm -hmm. to watch them go like certain either like uh bits or jokes i've written into it they just either elevate or have found new ones to shove in between the ones that i made and they're already better than the ones i tried to make happen which is the beauty of like rehearsal and performance but definitely to see a story that hasn't been told in this way before like i am ever since i was a little kid i've been obsessed with like originality like if i was playing a video game or like a game with my friends like as kids and everyone's like I want to be a pirate I want to be a I want to like robot pirate and I would make sure that I was like the off the wall well I'm going to be 
a third age guardian angel who's fallen from his, I would like overwrite myself to make it an original pretend play moment. But um, for this, I write things I want to see on stage. And there are some several moments in this, um, several like just like comedic moments and several like magical realism moments that I've always like wanted to see on stage. So uh, what the too long don't read version of that would be once again, have a laugh, come to the theater and have a laugh and then uh, see something you haven't really seen before. I would say that what I want, which is maybe uh, a very silly answer, but I just, ideally, I would like people to enter the theater and then leave the theater feeling like time hasn't passed. That fully every uh, minute of what they were watching just felt very engaging um, and, and earned which may just be a result of me having a short attention span on my own and feeling like so often I'm watching things and things that I think are fantastic that I just, I walk away thinking we could have, 20 minutes of that could have been cut. Not a great answer for what I want people to think like emotionally, but I just want it to all feel uh, fully lived. And I think that primarily you will walk away laughing, but I do, uh, there's some deep cuts in there. Well, I'm actually excited to see your play and your production of the play, uh, which is starting previews on January 16th. So you have a couple weeks of rehearsal left. Uh, for those out there who want to come and see Soul Survivor with me at the Players Theater down in Greenwich Village, um, you can go to Ovation Ticks and there's a promo code for reduced price tickets. Soul 50 is the code S-O-U-L 50. And uh, we can see Soul Survivor together and then get together next month at the next podcast and hear the recap of what I thought. And obviously any comments that you guys have, you're welcome to email me or send me a note as well. Um, anything else you guys have to add? You know what? I thought of two more things actually, uh, which is uh, Soul Survivor is an equity approved showcase. So equity members will be getting in for free. And we also, we have an industry night specifically for that uh, one of the Tuesdays and you can find that online. Uh, but the other thing is that on our Sunday matinees, Dante and I will both be there for a talk back after the shows. So you can hear more from us if that's what you've been into for these past couple minutes. And you can ask us questions about the play that you'll have actually seen by then. And hopefully some of the cast members will be there too. That's great news. Well, I thank you both for coming. Dante, I wish you well with your play. Thank you. And Molly with your staging. And I look forward to seeing it. And... Uh, writing about it and blogging about it. Um, good luck to both of you, and thanks again for stopping by. Thank you so much. Thank you. I will be publishing my review of Soul Survivor after opening night on Friday, January 17th. Performances are scheduled through February 2nd. Now let's switch gears and have a little ribald holiday fun with All I Want for Christmas is Attention. Ben de la Creme and Jinx Monsoon are two personalities who emerged from the RuPaul's Drag Race juggernaut. Jinx was the winner of season five. Dela is the only performer to have won five maxi challenges in a single season and also to have won Snatch Game twice. If you know what that means, those are significant accomplishments. If you don't, it probably sounds idiotic. It is, in the best way, which is why the Emmy Awards are piling up. 
This holiday season, they are touring, and all I want for Christmas is attention. As they will inform, everyone is traumatized by Christmas. In this singing, dancing, comedy burlesque, these two very talented performers will focus on the negative about Christmas rather than the fictitious. They ask serious questions, such as, what the hell is wassailing? Both are very funny, and the many costumes are sparkling or witty or both. The persona of Jinx Monsoon is that of a substance-adled boozer. From a poor background, Christmas was never the one she saw on television. They take Lord's song Royal and turn it into Spoiled to express their frustrations. Jinx's grandmother passed down a recipe which, quote, wound up being the number for the local dominoes. At the other end of the spectrum is the self-described terminally delightful Ben de la Creme. In an interview, Benjamin Putnam said that he considers drag to be an inherently political act. He views it as an opportunity to encourage people to think about complex issues related to gender and sexuality through humor and theater. Adding religion to that outlook is the concoction these two co-creators have put into the punch bowl. Bendela holds a glass and sings, When You Wish Upon a Nog. The eggnog becomes the vehicle by which his dead Nana communicates from the beyond. His Christmas childhood memories are happier ones than those of Jinx. In one of a number of well-done video clips, Dela sits in front of a fireplace and shares her ideas for festetaining. In the best drag shows, edgier fare shines brightest. There is some mild blue humor sprinkled in for giggles. Regarding Pfeffernoose, you can really taste the pea. Neither performer's character is too raunchy, though. The humor is much smarter than that. When Dela tells the story of Jesus, he starts with, Mary was just virgining around. She then postulates the Immaculate Conception as potentially predatory by God. What holiday song bets fits this interpretation? Mary, it's cold outside, is the hilarious answer. Both make a few points about our culture of Christmas and the excess of consumption. Let's not kill the earth to celebrate Christ. I had forgotten that the classic holiday film White Christmas contained a minstrel show. With their tongues planted firmly in cheek, a theory emerges. Could it be that every religion is a cult? The joyously silly All I Want for Christmas is Attention is a deftly conceived and professionally executed entertainment. This show is for people who can embrace the spirit, see the hypocrisy, and have a sense of humor. If you are game, cross your chest and shake your hips because everybody's doing the nativity twist. All I Want for Christmas's attention had a one-night stop in New York City during its holiday tour across the country, and the show was produced by Ben de la Creme. Now for something at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I'd like to talk about Judgment Day, which was performed at the Park Avenue Armory. In 1937, 
the Nazi party was already in power. Hitler had reoccupied the Rhineland and broken the Treaty of Versailles. The Luftwaffe had been formed. Jews were banned from the military. The Nuremberg Laws had already gone into effect. In this environment, German playwright Odon von Horvath wrote Judgment Day. The setting is a train station in a very small village somewhere in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The time is 1933. The local station master, Er Udetz, rigorously runs this station like clockwork. A terrible accident occurs, leading to the death of 18 people. The play quickly gets to this event. What follows is an expose on mob mentality. The timeliness of this revival is evident. The townspeople are nasty gossips. Rumors get started and become facts. The flirtatious innkeeper's daughter Anna tells Udets, They say you are not a man. He asks, Who says that? She replies, The whole town. Udets lives on the upper floor of the station with his wife. She is 13 years older and appears to be a jealous, barking shrew. Frau Leimgruber is waiting for a train which is 45 minutes late. She has a conversation with a salesman. I hate people, she says. He understands. For all I care, she adds, the whole town could drop dead. The mood of this play is bitter and angry. As a result, the dialogue is dark and the people are largely unlikable. They cast aspersions. They pass judgments. After the tragedy, the station master admits that he doesn't want to live anymore. I still hear the screams. Anna offers a suggestion. Maybe you have to do something worse so that you will be punished. Citizens of this town are fickle. They defend, support, and love one minute and cruelly discard and condemn the next. Like many of the mobs in America today, all of this judgment occurs without facts. Even when things are briefly going well, the barmaid has some sage advice. Don't be too noble or people will turn on you again. The play itself is excellent. Mr. von Horvath created a fascinating tale of guilt and a harsh criticism of his contemporaries. This production is housed in the cavernous Park Avenue Armory. Paul Steinberg's sets are nothing short of gigantic, fashioned out of plywood. They are moved around the room with giant lifts. Scene changes are cumbersome and sap all energy from the room. Occasionally, cast members run around the movement to enact mob mentality to distract attention or to kill time, depending on your judgment. The lighting designed by Mimi Jordan Sharon is sensational, however. Trains whiz by. The night sky ominously frames the giant trees. Shadows portend danger. Unfortunately, the direction by Richard Jones is very uneven. This little play is lost amidst the need to fill the voluminous space. What's even worse is the lack of consistency in the actor's presentations. The barmaid is oddly contemporary. 
Luke Kirby, an Emmy winner for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, plays the station master in a rigidly precise way. I enjoyed the performance immensely, but the style contrasted so obviously with everyone else, especially his freewheeling wife, Frau Hudetz, a fine Alyssa Bresnahan. Her unpopular brother, Alphonse, is played by Henry Stram, and his discomfort and acquiescence registers beautifully. Harriet Harris nailed the tone perfectly as Frau Liemgruber, the town's busiest of busybodies. Her scathing tongue is utterly detestable. Perfecting the groupthink mentality and using gossip to entertain herself and destroy others is her pastime. I did not feel the same way about Anna, the flirty girl at the center of the story. Susanna Perkins conveyed pretty and desirable. She did not, however, convincingly project a woman that is manipulative enough to justify her actions. Judgment Day is a very fine play. With a critical eye, Odon von Horvath sheds a bold spotlight on the culpability of a village. Maybe in another 100 years, the world will understand how the culpability of a now morally bankrupt Republican Party will be judged. The day I wrote this review, the House of Representatives was voting on impeachment. Let's watch the mobs and remain bemused. Now I'd like to tell you about the Broadway production of A Christmas Carol. Hundreds of lanterns are hung throughout the entire Lyceum Theater for this production of A Christmas Carol. Jack Thorne, from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, has adapted Charles Dickinson's holiday staple, and those lights will be needed to guide the audience through the darkness. This tale of Ebenezer Scrooge is bleak, in a good way, and ultimately redemptive, if a trifle overbaked. Campbell Scott is a wonderful Scrooge, full of anger and greed. The clever set design by Rob Howell has boxes submerged in the floor. When pulled out, they stack and create furniture, but also represent the safe deposit boxes in which to hoard money. Scrooge believes that taking on a debt is a kindness. At his own funeral, Scrooge sees his nephew Fred remarking, my uncle was unable to find joy in the most basic of things. He adds a disarming coda. He was a tragedy. This version of A Christmas Carol lays its darkness on heavily. When redemption finally happens, the contrast is striking. There is much to enjoy in this retelling, staged by the inventive director Matthew Warchus. He did Matilda, The Norman Conquests, and Boeing Boeing, amongst others. There are head-scratching misses, however, which detract from the story's power. Two excellent actresses, Andrea Martin and Lachans, play the ghosts of Christmas past and present. Their performances are so oddball that they seem jokey. Lachans delivers hers in a Caribbean accent wearing sunglasses. Any weight of drama is stripped away. Chris Hawk's Marley is uneventful except for the surfeit of chains on his costume. Thankfully, Mr. Scott is grounded and effective watching the scenes unfolding in front of his eyes. 
There are genuinely touching moments, such as a view into young Ebenezer's boyhood playing with toys. His late-in-life visit to Belle is a triumphant expression of raw emotions. Sarah Hunt is magnificent in the part of the girlfriend who got away. Tears visibly stream off her face as the two reflect on their pasts and presents. Audience members could be heard sniffling. It is one of the finest scenes on Broadway this year. Other particularly positive aspects of this production are the performances of Dashiell Eves as Bob Cratchit and Rachel Prather as Scrooge's sister, Little Fan. She doubles as the guide through Christmas Future in the far better second act. The celebration of the spirit of Christmas is gloriously realized in an audience participation preparation of the feast. That creative idea goes on way too long, however, and it becomes awkward to watch the forced frivolity. The nice touches and quieter moments are where this production makes its mark. There are multiple times the cast performs Christmas carols on handheld bells. That effect grounds this tale in the past and is sweetly nostalgic. The set offers a bunch of surprises. Other than the hideous ghost outfits of patchwork, the costumes are transportive. At the end of the day, a Christmas carol must have a great Scrooge to be successful. Campbell Scott delivers that performance. His transformation to joy is effectively realized and shocking from what came before. This version has some flaws for sure, but can be recommended for an abundance of creative innovation and visual flourishes. The ghosts matter less in this retelling. That makes the living and breathing among us even more important to consider. Who wants to hear... He was a tragedy at their own funeral. This version of A Christmas Carol is running through January 5th. Are you ready for another version of A Christmas Carol? This one's wildly different than the last two I talked about. And it is titled, A Christmas Carol, Oi Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Ramadan. If you've seen Drunk History on television, you will understand the vibe of this show. Imagine you have an elderly uncle who is of Czech descent. He has a marvelous collection of marionettes. After a few shots of Bekrovka, he invites the family down into the basement for an impromptu retelling and updating of a Christmas classic. That is the best way to describe a Christmas Carol, Oi Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Ramadan. I visited Prague in 2018 and saw Don Giovanni at the National Marionette Theater. The art form is centuries old. As the program notes, the typical puppeteering family owned a portable theater, including a stage, and about 20 marionettes. The four primary backdrops would be a room, a village, a royal castle, and a forest. They would transport these materials from one venue to the next on wheelbarrow. Seeing a live version of this history is certainly fascinating to experience. One performer would produce all of the voices and be the main puppet operator. That is the format followed in this production. Vit 
Jores founded the Czechoslovak American Marionette Theater in 1990 using two-century-old puppets, which he found in the Jans Hus Church on East 74th Street. For the Bob Cratchit character, he uses a puppet from his mother's identical set that he played with as a child. The backstory of this production is rich with memories of old world traditions. As the title suggests, however, new world inclusiveness is the attempted update in this holiday offering. Lyrics in the opening song, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, are rewritten to celebrate other faiths and cultures. The idea of opening up Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol to be religiously diverse is inspired. Mr. Horas even makes jokes about his update. During a dreidel scene, he remarks, You have to save that multicultural holiday stuff for centuries later. Tongue-in-cheek line deliveries and self-aware humor fill the show winningly. Scrooge's nephew Fred is wearing a fashionable outfit and repeatedly proclaims, Don't you just love it? Marley is represented by a cleverly designed chain puppet. During an interchange with Scrooge, he admonishes, I didn't come from the grave to argue over tenses. The marionettes are made by Milos Kasal, Baklav Kerchal, and unknown Czech folk artists. As a result, certain cast members fill in as best they can. Twins in the Cratchit house have beards. Their mother tells them to take them off. We can't, they say, since they are made out of porcelain. Good-spirited quirkiness is evident throughout the show. Politics play a role as well. Dickinson's tale is famously reflective about the society he observed. Today, Mr. Horace notes, being poor is not in anymore. He elaborates, what's wrong with bundling up some subprime mortgages or building hotels and casinos and defaulting on the loans? Bah humbug. The idea for this show is terrific, but the execution is wanting. Two women assist, filling in the gaps with holiday songs sung in Czech, English, Hebrew, Slovak, Spanish, and Swahili. Velwa Mickens and Katerina Vizina are fun sidekicks. Everything moves too slowly, however, from set changes to dialogue. Admiration falls by the wayside, and the experience becomes a bit of a slog to endure. In the basement space of Theater for the New City, there is a strong sense of being with your Czech uncle on Christmas Eve. He brings out his toys and ad-libs this renowned story. Since your family is now more diverse, he throws in other references to be more inclusive. Hanukkah is far more represented, however, than Kwanzaa and Ramadan, despite relatively equal billing in the title. This inexpensive and unique diversion will definitely take you back in time to theatrical history that is remarkably still alive. A Christmas Carol, Oi Hanukkah, Merry Kwanzaa, Happy Ramadan is being performed at the Theater for the New City until January 5th. And now it's time for my last, I promise, review of A Christmas Carol. And it happens to be my favorite version that I saw this month. 
My fourth visit this month to the world of Ebenezer Scrooge shows just how monumentally important this story is to our culture. Sure, How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer are indelible holiday entertainments. On a more human scale, however, this morality tale resonates powerfully when read or given a fine production. Charles Dickinson's A Christmas Carol, A Play with Music, is a stunning achievement which masterfully makes the author's words come to vivid life. The show is being performed on a tour of historical landmarks. The performance I saw was held at the Al Hirschfeld Gallery in the Mansion Museum owned by Margot Fiden. An optional buffet dinner, complete with delicious mince pies, preceded the show. Exploring this historic house, built in 1845, was a special treat filled with Mr. Hirschfeld's wonderful works of art. The setting was the house's ballroom, added in 1899. Miss Fiden introduced the play and the performers in her home. She imagined that when Mr. Dickens visited New York, he likely would have stopped into this prominent household. He did indeed make a second trip to New York City in 1868. That is an interesting ghost story to accompany a famous ghost story. Jeffries Tice and Eric Scott Anthony co-conceived and wrote this version. Mr. Tice plays the actor, and Mr. Anthony is the musician. The presentation is a 75-minute two-man show. The feeling is one of a book blossoming into three-dimensional life. Words are faithful to Dickens's text. Scenes, which do not appear in typical productions, here provide memorable moments. One such scene is where Scrooge visits a ship with the ghost of Christmas present. Two barstool-type chairs represent the entire set. When Scrooge is floating above the sailors, Mr. Tice places the two chairs together and stands high on them. The visual, combined with the prose, is transporting. This is A Christmas Carol, performed with the words as the star and the actor as the brilliant communicator. Mr. Tice plays every part in the show. His many voices and facial manipulations make each characterization clear. He flips from stool to stool when in conversation. Does he believe that his former business partner really came to visit him from the afterlife? After all, Scrooge says, you may be an undigested piece of beef a classic quote from the original tale. In his performance, I saw Zachary Quinto, David Bowie, and also a close friend of mine, which enhanced my enjoyment of Mr. Tace's exceptional physicality and, importantly, his ability to capture my attention. Having seen this tale four times this month, I was concerned about repetition. This one was the most complete version. Furthermore, I appreciated the included section about social injustice describing the boy's ignorance and the girl's want. Sitting in a mansion with less than 20 people nicely punctuated that particular moment. Mr. Anthony ably supported this performance as the musician. He strums the guitar, adding a score to the storytelling. He makes terrific sound effects to embellish the action. There is a playfulness between these two performers that keeps the mood light and fun.
he also adds Christmas carols to the show. At one point, he sings, Oh Holy Night. The rendition is beautiful. When I was listening to that song sitting comfortably on a couch in a historic Greenwich Village mansion, I heard the last line as if for the first time. O night divine. This version of A Christmas Carol is well worth seeking out. Scrooge asks the ghost of Christmas yet to come, Why show me this if I'm past all hope? Because we all need a little reminder now and again about goodness, generosity, and the true spirit of Christmas in this crazy world in which we live. Next, we'll go to Off-Broadway's Playwrights Horizons. The Thin Place by Lucas Nath. A couple of years ago, playwright Lucas Nath and director Les Waters were working on a play called Dana H. That one is coming to New York in February at the Vineyard Theater. During a conversation, Mr. Waters observed, Well, it's as if we've gone into a thin place at this point in the story. Mr. Nath asked, What's the thin place? The response, Oh, you know, it's the place where the line between this world and some other world is very thin. This tremendously talented playwright jotted down, quote, The thin place on a scrap of paper, thinking it would be a good title for a play. He didn't know what would happen in it. I just thought I'd like to write that play. In the program notes, he advises his audience, the less you know, the better. That is true. The stage is essentially bare, with two comfortable chairs and a small table between them. Hilda is sitting with a mug of tea. She tells a story about her childhood and her love for her grandmother. They practice psychic mind games. Grandma wanted to be able to communicate from the beyond in one of those thin places between our world and wherever the next world is. In an excellent, tight-lipped, anxiety-filled, yet loosely modulated performance, Emily Cass McDonnell begins our journey to the supernatural. She is a big fan of Linda, who's played by Randy Danson. Linda is a famous medium who communicates with the dead. Emily has yet to connect with her grandmother, that's the premise which begins this multidimensional tale filled with thoughtful ideas and structural twists and turns. The Thin Place is, once again, another outstanding play from Lucas Nath. The relationship between these two individuals develop. Belief systems are considered and challenged. Two other characters appear in the middle of the play. They're portrayed by Kelly McAndrew and Trini Sandoval. A party atmosphere is punctuated by wine and conversation. Linda is working for a politician who does not connect with his constituents. She is giving him her techniques as a spiritual advisor. Is that moral to help someone insinuate themselves through mind control tricks? The final section of the play is equally fascinating all the way until the final word is spoken. This tale has so many layers the eeriness of a ghost story, the sadness of a child's relationship with a mother who felt possessed by evil spirits, the inherent cynicism of human beings, powerful belief foundations, 
Like his play The Christians, Mr. Nath sees complexity in his characters, motivations, and thoughts. This isn't simply a play about the thin place between life and the afterlife. Our brains and the thin place between ambiguity and observational fact is the space explored so effectively here. Think about a creepy movie or personal experience. Was that the wind or something more dangerous? How our minds interpret information will come into play as an observer of this production. An incredibly entertaining and original play, The Thin Place demands discussion afterward. Les Waters' direction is simple, and his actors beautifully travel through the various moods and structural adjustments in this absorbing work. The lighting designed by Mark Barton is puzzling at first, but becomes abundantly clear as the play progresses. This is a unique production, which stimulates the senses and feels wholly original. The silence is as powerful as the noise. How will your brain fill in those moments as you ponder this story and its unfolding? This is my fifth time admiring a play written by Lucas Nath. Every one of them is excellent and highly recommended. From Off-Broadway's The Christians and Red Speedo to the two Broadway outings, Hillary and Clinton, and also A Doll's House Part 2. In our current golden age of drama, I expect this storyteller and his works will stand tall on the list of best plays from the early 21st century period. The Thin Place has been extended through January 26th at Playwrights Horizons. My last review of the month is a child-friendly entertainment packaged as the Up Close Festival and performed at the New Ohio Theater. An archive apprentice directs you to a door. A special knock and pizza rat appears. As you descend the stairs, a scientist is listening to the wall through a metal can. We will find out about that later. A few instructions are provided, and please add one about the uneven floor. The small group enters a 360-degree immersive environment. The Up Close Festival encourages interaction and participation for its target audience, namely five-year-old children and up. The start of this entertainment is slow, and people mill about noticeably confused as to where to go and what to do. There are cast members who communicate ideas, such as separating sound bottles into categories which are good and bad. There is a chessboard on the floor. Bodega Cat is teaching the game of dominoes. In the performance I attended, the adult-to-children ratio was not ideal, so the awkwardness loomed large. After an excessive amount of time, Pizza Rat, played by a delightful Marisol Rosa Shapiro, she introduces herself and welcomes everyone to the Ark. The New Ohio Theater is housed at a building which had previously been an archive, Memories of old New York live in here. Those thoughts, she informs, live in artifacts, walls, and the magic that each of us brings. In its second year, the idea for the festival is to bring the spirit of famed Greenwich Village activist Jane Jacobs to the theater. She led the fight to save Washington Square Park amidst a proposed superhighway development.
Her history should have been further explained if she is the inspirational centerpiece of this exercise. The structure of this production is designed to present short-form, immersive works which honor the neighborhood's past. The results are decidedly mixed. Sanctuary Garden begins as a sit-down circle reminiscent of a kindergarten classroom. The storytelling begins with tales of the Lenape natives who populated this area. Three volunteers will stand and pretend to be corn, squash, and beans. A tree sees the changes in the city over the years. This massive development is shown via a paper puppet projection. All of a sudden, it's 1987, people are getting sick, and we don't know why. This section has a feeling reminiscent of the old television series The Magic Garden. Concepts are very basic and quickly presented. The ideal target age seems to be less than five. Then the AIDS crisis is referenced, which surely is a part of the neighborhood's history. With no context or elaboration, that tidbit likely flies over the children's heads and the next short vignette begins. Why was it mentioned? 219 Thompson Street is based on a locally famous chess war. The owners had competing stores across the street from the other. One was a former protege. Then, all of a sudden, Sylvia Rivera, the founding member of the Gay Liberation Front, is referenced in passing. Why? Volunteers in hats demonstrate chess moves. The performers in this section were fun and over-the-top in their boisterousness. Their efforts did not hide, however, that it was hard to discern the story being told and, more importantly, why it was told. The most successful short work is the final piece, The Society of Historic Sonic Happenings, written and directed by Adrian Kapstein. Until 1966, the experimental wing of Bell Labs was generating ideas in a building nearby. Five scientists dedicated to lost, hidden, and forgotten sounds take us through a journey to hear the neighborhood's past. This section is a nicely orchestrated combination of whimsical and focused. Five performers introduce the sound-capturing concepts and the immersive and enjoyable game we are about to play. Each of them created individual characters and personalities. I was happily assigned to Theo's group. Akash Shimoretti gleefully portrayed the overexcited intern type and was quite fun with his unbridled enthusiasm. Many adults do not participate as small groups play the game. I understand this show is designed for kids, but some interaction with that large discarded group seems necessary. Finally, Pizza Rat gets everybody back together again. We are asked to name our favorite pizza. A woman near me yelled, Hawaiian. A cast member remarked, that's the one with pineapple. Noting, that's a bit controversial. I laughed. The Up Close Festival could use more moments like that little surprise to be engaging. The idea to celebrate a neighborhood's fascinating and colorful past is a great one. Oral traditions and interactive storytelling can be informative and instructive. At one point, a scientist tells us that the Bell Labs team invented transistors. No explanation is provided. In a show designed for children, 
too many historical factoids zing past. In its execution, the thematic purpose of this show is too muddled to be recommended. I hope you enjoyed this episode from Theater Reviews from My Seat. Next month, I'll be covering the current Broadway revival of Slava's Snow Show. In addition to Soul Survivor, a bunch of new plays and a handful of productions from the Public Theater's Under the Radar Festival. Finally, a contemporary rewrite of Euripides' Medea at BAM, starring Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale. If you have any comments or suggestions, I'd always like to hear them. Also, if you're looking for me to review a specific show, please send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for email subscriptions to current reviews as they are published at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. Thank you for listening, enjoy your day, and happy theater going.